foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Marcy Winograd of Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Welcome to our Code Pink Radio Show, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations. You can also hear us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And do check out our website at www.codepink.org, where you'll find the latest on our campaigns and all of our radio episodes and podcasts. Today, we bring you the voices of those gathered at the Latin America and Caribbean Policy Forum, recently held at American University in Washington, D.C. The forum was titled, In Search of a New U.S. Policy for a New Latin America, Bearing 200 Years of the Monroe Doctrine. What was the Monroe Doctrine? In 1823, the U.S. claimed Latin America as its exclusive sphere of influence. That was the Monroe Doctrine. For 200 years now, this doctrine has justified violent U.S. interventions, economic exploitation, and the spread of U.S. imperialism throughout the hemisphere. The U.S. can no longer sustain its development on exploitation and human rights violations. It's time to bury the Monroe Doctrine. We begin with a warm welcome from Peter Kuznick, Professor of History and Director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University, followed by Samantha Wary, a Code Pink Latin American campaigner, who together with Code Pink's Michelle Elner and Medea Benjamin and others produced this forum on Latin America and the Caribbean. I want to start with a quote by Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, in individuals, insanity is rare, but in groups, parties, nations, and epics, it is the rule. I think Nietzsche's words really apply to what's going on in the world today. And I look back to what Freud said in 1929 in Civilization and His Discontents, when he posed a new duality a duality between eros, the life instinct, and the death instinct. And it seems that, collectively, as a species, we're exercising the death instinct. We're facing two major existential crises. One is the intensifying nuclear threat, the threat of nuclear annihilation. The other is planetary suicide with global warming. It was back in 2018 that the experts from the Bulletin Atomic Scientists moved the hands of the doomsday clock to two minutes before midnight. The clock began in 1947. Back in the early 50s and 53, after the US and Soviets tested their hydrogen bombs, it was moved to two minutes before midnight. That didn't happen again until 2018. 
uh, after the US and North Korea almost went to war. In 2020, they moved the hands of the doomsday clock to 100 seconds before midnight. And then in 2021, they moved it to, or 2022, they moved it to 90 seconds before midnight. That's the reality that we're confronting now, closer to annihilation than ever. Uh, now, given how dangerous the world has become since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I would move it even closer than 90 seconds to midnight. It was a, almost a decade ago when Oliver Stone and I produced our documentary film series and books titled The Untold History of the United States. I like the Spanish title even better, which was La Historia Silenciada de los Estados Unidos. And this was uh, we, uh, tracing the history of the American empire back to the 1890s, this latest phase. This was post-slavery, post-genocide against Native Americans, and with beginning in the 1890s with the Spanish-American War, the United States embarked on a path to become the leading counter-revolutionary force in the world. Uh, and it begins in Cuba, but it also begins at the same time in the Philippines. And the United States begins on this dark path. And the United States, over the next century plus, has been intervening time and again to overthrow progressive governments, to occupy countries, in this policy of US domination of Latin America and the Caribbean. It was Samuel Huntington who said that uh, the West, meaning the United States, won the world, not by the superiority of its ideas or values or religion, but by the superior uh, application of organized violence. Westerners often forget that fact Non-Westerners never do. And that's what we're here to talk about in large part today. When Biden took office, some of us had a little bit of hope that he would break with the reactionary and dangerous foreign policies of the Trump administration. But we were quickly disabused of that notion. Uh, and, uh, but what we see uh, among those Westerners who reject that idea are the members of the Global South, and we're seeing them react today. Uh, the fact that more than that countries representing more than 75% of the world's population refuse to go along with US sanctions against Russia is not a sign that they embrace Russia's invasion, which they don't. It's a, it's a sign that uh, the world sees it much like the London Economist phrased it, says Biden wants to make this a struggle between autocracy and democracy. But the world sees it as a struggle between autocracy and hypocrisy. And that's the way we've got to see it. I got a phone call yesterday uh, from my friend Dan Ellsberg. Now, most of you know Dan Ellsberg is the world's leading whistleblower. Uh, he's also the leading voice warning against the threat of nuclear annihilation. And Dan has been in the news a lot lately. He's 92 years old and was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, inoperable pancreatic cancer. And everybody has been wanting to interview him. The New York Times, the Washington Post, everybody else wants a final interview with Dan. And Dan called and said, Peter, as my current hopelessness, or fa the fact that I have pancreatic cancer and I'm on my deathbed, 
or is it because the world is really in such a horrible situation? And Dan understood this because the reality is that we are really closer to doomsday in many ways than we've been. But there is some hope, and this is what I, okay, this, and there is some hope, and this is what we laid out to Dan and I discussed, that we see the initiatives taken by Xi Jinping with his 12-point peace plan. We see the initiatives taken by Lula with his outreach. My friend Oliver Stone is now producing a documentary about Lula, which is gonna be a major intervention. But Lula's peace initiative, trying to get the world behind a diplomatic solution now to the Ukrainian crisis, is a major step in the right direction. Uh, I, I, I'm about out of time, but uh, we have a day today we're gonna talk about Latin America and the Caribbean and the forces of the third world, the forces of the global south that are resisting this for war and U.S. hegemony as we bury the Monroe Doctrine finally after 200 years. Thank you. Today, we see a new world order emerging where traditional power structures are being challenged by new movements and ideologies. This is a time of change and turmoil, but it's also an opportunity for us to build a more just and equitable world. We must continue to stand up against oppression and fight for the rights of all people. I feel humbled and honored to be in the presence of so many luchadores, so many fighters in this room who have been in this struggle longer than I have been alive. One of those people is our keynote speaker, Juan Gonzalez. whose sheer determination and unyielding resilience is an inspiration. Juan Gonzalez has been fighting for what, what is right from a young age while staying true to his identity and his roots. In fact, when in kindergarten, teachers suggested that he go by John instead of Juan. Juan knew he had to speak up, and so he did, boldly proclaiming that his name was Juan and always would be. From then on, he was unapologetic about who he was and unrelenting in his pursuit of justice. Through his involvement with Young Lords Party during the late 1960s and the National Congress for Puerto Rican Rights in the early 1980s, Juan discovered that he had the power not only to assert himself, but also to work with others to affect real change. Today, Juan continues to carry the lesson with him. He's an award-winning journalist and investigative reporter and author of many books, including the classic Harvest of Empire, a history of Latinos in America. He, ha he has also been the co-host of Democracy Now! since it started in 1996. Please join me in welcoming our, our keynote speaker, Juan Gonzalez. Thank you and good morning to all of you. It is an honor to be with you all today, to be part of this grand and growing, hopefully, alliance of people's organizations, calling for an end to the Monroe Doctrine and for a new US policy toward Latin America. For more than 50 years, I have been an activist, a journalist, and a chronicler 
of the evolution of both the Latinx communities in the United States and of Latin America's deeply troubled relationship with U.S. leaders. As someone who was born in Puerto Rico, the last major U.S. colony, but who has lived my entire life in the barrios of the East Coast, I've been acutely aware of the direct connection between Latinos in this country and the peoples of Latin America. There are today 62 million people of Latin American descent in the United States. That's as the Census Bureau is of actually of 2020. 18.7% of the population. It's actually 65.2 million if you include the people of Puerto Rico, U.S. citizens since 1917, which the Census Bureau never does when counting U.S. Hispanics. That is an astounding number when you consider that a little more than 50 years ago, when I was a young radical member of the Young Lords Party, the Latinx population was just 9.1 million and represented a mere 4.5% of the population. So the first thing that we must grasp is that we are living through and witnessing an historic transformation of the very composition of the U.S. population. The main theme of my book, Harvest of Empire, when I wrote it nearly a quarter century ago, is that the mushrooming migration from Latin America, Asia, and Africa to the rich nations of the world can only be understood and ultimately will only be resolved by a reckoning with the legacy of the colonial empires of the US and other Western nations that they created in those regions during the previous two centuries. Quite simply, the modern immigration crisis of the industrial direct result, an unintended result, but one nonetheless, of the political upheavals and wealth inequalities those empires produced and sustained to this day. And what, in short, were those US policies toward Latin America specifically? Repeated military, as some people have mentioned already, that led to the economic dislocation and famine in key countries. Siphoning of an enormous share of the region's national wealth to El Norte, especially through Wall Street debt financing. Political repression by Washington-sponsored and trained leaders and civil wars fueled by U.S. arms shipments, and aggressive labor recruitment by U.S. industries of Latin American workers to meet the needs of those industries. When President Monroe issued his doctrine in 1823, it was hailed by Latin American leaders. At last, they thought, U.S. neutrality toward their fight for independence from Spain would end. Gran Colombia's revolutionary president at the time, Francisco de Paula Santander, praised it as, quote, an act worthy of the classic land of liberty. With the English Navy and the United States as nominal protectors of Latin American independence, the new countries of the region at least managed to avert the catastrophes that befell much of Africa and Asia when the European powers divided those regions between them during the great colonial partitions of the late 19th century. But subsequent US presidents turned the doctrine into a weapon of systematic oppression. 
Latin America, especially the Caribbean basin, became a U.S. dominion with North American adventurers repeatedly seeking to grab more territory. South America's great liberator, Simón Bolívar, grew so weary of the constant arrogance from our leaders in Washington that he declared before his death the United States seemed, quote, destined by providence to plague America with torments in the name of freedom. As thousands of U.S. businessmen and adventurers headed south of the border, Latin America became the birthplace of the first great multinational U.S. corporations, enriching some of the country's most celebrated families. The factual record of how the entire region was pillaged is so ample, so sordid, that it almost defies comprehension. And I don't mean the simple outright seizure and annexation of Texas and half of Mexico's territory during the Mexican-American War, territory that would later become California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, and portions of Colorado and Utah. It was also the exploitation of Central and South America and the Caribbean islands. William Aspinwall who made millions with his Panama Railroad in 1855, transporting North Americans across the isthmus from the East Coast to the California gold fields, or Cornelius Vanderbilt's Nicaragua Transit Company, or the psychotic episode of soldier of fortune William Walker, who during his two-year rule as a dictator of Nicaragua in the 1850s, reinstituted slavery, declared English an official language of Nicaragua, and was welcomed at the White House. More than 11,000 North Americans moved to Nicaragua during Walker's reign, with three to 5,000 joining his occupation army. There was the infamous United Fruit Company, the first great U.S. multinational corporation, with plantations in Cuba, Honduras, Costa Rica, Guatemala, and Colombia, its own railroads and shipping companies, the most powerful force in the region. There was the Havemeyer family, Sugar Trust, that monopolized all sugar supplies to the United States with plantations in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, shipping all their produce to refineries in Brooklyn, Boston, and Baltimore under the name of Domino Sugar. There was the Guggenheim family with its massive investments in Mexican railways, and the Hearst family with cattle ranches of more than a million acres in northern Mexico. During the late 19th century reign of dictator Porfirio Diaz, Mexico was basically sold off to foreign investors. By 1910, more than 40,000 North Americans had settled in Mexico. 15,000 of them had gobbled up land, and they controlled 130 million acres. 27% of the entire surface area of Mexico was owned by US citizens. Americans own 78% of Mexico's mines, 73% of its smelters, 58% of its oil, 68% of its rubber business. 1898, of course, was the climactic year for the creation of the U.S. colonial empires, has been stated with the seizure of Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines, and Guam during the Spanish-American War. But the list of direct military interventions that ensued during the 20th century is mind-boggling. The sponsoring by Teddy Roosevelt and the U.S. Navy of a whole country, Panama, just so Americans could secure land to build the Panama Canal. 
interventions in Nicaragua five different times, including the war against Sandino liberation fighters from 1926 to 1933 and the CIA funding of the Contras in the 1980s. Mexico invaded three times, Honduras twice, Cuba three times after 1898, not counting the CIA-sponsored Bay of Pigs fiasco in 1961. Guatemala and the Arbenz coup in 54, Chile and Allende, coup in 1973. The Dominican Republic invaded three times, including President Johnson's sending of thousands of U.S. troops in 1965 to squash a people's revolt for democracy. Haiti in 1915 and again in 1994. Panama again in 1918, 1925, 1989. If Latin America had not been pillaged by U.S. capital since its independence, Millions of desperate workers would not now be coming here in such numbers to reclaim a share of, the, of that wealth. And, and if the United States is today the world's richest nation, it is in part because of the sweat and blood of copper workers of Chile, the tin minders of Bolivia, the fruit pickers of Guatemala and Honduras, the cane cutters of Cuba, the oil workers of Venezuela and Mexico, the pharmaceutical workers of Puerto Rico, the ranch hands of Costa Rica and Argentina, the West Indians who died building the Panama Canal, and the Panamanians who maintained it. But all that exploitation sparked a result the empire never expected. By World War II, with migration from Europe closed off, the U.S. initiated the Bracero program, recruiting and contracting as many as 350,000 Mexican workers a year and tens of thousands of Puerto Ricans to work in U.S. factories and fields. The result of all that labor contracting and all the instability our foreign policy created has resulted in multiple Latino migration waves to the U.S. differing not only in their ethnic and racial characteristics, but in their classic origins. Throughout all of this, the Monroe Doctrine has been the excuse for U.S. meddling. It has never been renounced by the U.S. Even the Pope and the Vatican finally rejected this year the doctrine of discovery, the white supremacist theory that justified European domination of the native peoples of America. But our government still clings to Monroe's words. America under Washington control. Thankfully, most Latin American nations no longer follow dictates from the US. Recent elections in Mexico, Honduras, Colombia, Brazil, and Chile have brought progressive governments to virtually the entire region, and China's rise in the world economy has meant new loans and financing for the region's needs without the same strings that always came with loans from the Western banks. There are no wars, no major wars in Latin America today, no nuclear weapons, a growing commitment to tackle wealth inequality. The region has gone from a place of despair to one of hope. You don't hear any mention of this in the U.S. commercial media's reporting on Latin American migrants, coverage that always seems to focus on the images of chaos and border at a border overrun. So much of the immigration debate focuses more on heat than light more on one-sided sloganeering than dispassionate discourse, more on stoking the worst emotions among the American people rather than an honest attempt 
to understand the roots of the problem than devise the most humane and sensible solutions. Throughout the administration of four presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden, congressional leaders have failed to agree on how to overhaul the U.S. immigration system. They failed to resolve not just the fate of unauthorized migrants within the country, but also to modernize outdated guest worker programs or to refashion processes for granting permanent visas and handling asylum seekers and refugees. They have repeatedly deadlocked on such an overhaul precisely because the stakes are so high in an increasingly multiracial nation. Any comprehensive re immigration reform, after all, will determine who can legitimately become a U.S. citizen in the 21st century. It will reshape the, vote, the nation's voting population for decades to come and will alter the distribution of political and economic power at both the national and local level, and they know it. That's why they resist immigration reform. Our immigration crisis, however, is not unique. Ever since the end of World War II, the peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America of the third world of the global south have been coming to the west. England doesn't know what to do about all the Pakistanis, Indians, and Jamaicans. France doesn't know what to do about all the Algerians, Tunisians, and Moroccans. Germany doesn't know what to do about all the Turks and Syrians. The Netherlands about all the Indonesians. And in the United States, our leaders have grappled for decades with what to do about all the Latin American and Caribbean peoples and increasingly Africans and Asians that have migrated here. The key thing to understand is that the migrations have come from the very countries those metropolitan powers once colonized or dominated. And in recent years, we've seen the heartbreaking images of boat people crossing the Mediterranean to get to Italy, Greece, and the Balkan states with thousands perishing at sea in their attempts, but tens of thousands reaching Europe, many corralled into camps and detention centers. Where do these refugees come from? From Syria, from Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, countries where during the past two decades our own government's military interventions, occupations, and targeted bombings and assassinations have tragically led to greater violence and instability than previously existed. The sudden surge of people fleeing one country for another did not arise from thin air or from individual decisions made to simply seek a better life in another country. Rather, they are manifestations of profound flaws in the economic and political systems of our modern world. Much of it, I would submit to you, is the unintended harvest of past colonial empires and of a new stage of economic and political domination where the US an empire in decline is determined to use its military might to master the world, a rules-based order where Washington makes all the rules. But these migrations have been going on for so long now that they have reached critical mass, where they have begun to transform the actual composition of the receiving nations. Latinos in the US are in a unique position among all the modern migrant groups we come from a region of the world that has not only provided the bulk of this country's new migrants for the past 50 years, some of us trace our heritage to families that were living on what is now the US before it was the US. And a growing number of Latino migrants trace their origins to the indigenous 
the indigenous peoples of America or descendants from the enslaved Africans of the region. The enormous contributions of the Latin American diaspora to US prosperity rarely gets acknowledged. It is critically important to extol those contributions when others try to disseminate stereotypes of Mexico and other Latin American nations sending only criminals and paupers. Even today, the hardest, most menial, and least appreciated work in the US is performed by Latino migrants. Those who pick the fruits and vegetables that nourish us, who butcher the meat and poultry we consume, who tend our lawns and repair our roofs, who build our houses and haul our waste, who clean the hotels we use and the office buildings where we work, who wash the dishes and clear the tables in restaurants where we eat, who keep our universities clean and sparkling, are invariably Latinos. After 60 years of steady migration, the children of those Latin American migrants, most of them born or raised in this country, are on the cusp of transforming the United States. There are three million Latinx youth enrolled in American colleges and universities today. And the public school population is even bigger. More than 50% of the children in Texas and California public schools are Latino. More than 25% in Illinois and New York. 15% to 17% in Georgia and North Carolina. Many of them have been involved with the Dreamers leading the movement to legalize not just undocumented youth, but their parents and relatives as well. But Latino youth across the nation have said presente to other issues as well, the quest for answers to the disappearances of the students of Ayutzinapa and to all the mass violence in Juarez and all of Mexico, to stopping the detention of migrant children and families at the border, ending police abuse, racial profiling, and mass incarceration of black and Latino youth for minor offenses, winning a big jump in the minimum, in the minimum wage and paid sick leave for all who are employed. But there's much more to do, especially in the area of saving our planet from the ravages of climate change and achieving full equality for lesbians, gays, and transgender individuals. And many of you are involved in those causes as well. In 1969, when I was a young Latino activist, I helped found, as mentioned, the Young Lords, a radical Puerto Rican group, and later the National Congress of Puerto Rican Rights. The Lords, along with the Brown Berets, Mecha, La Raza Unida Party, August 29th Movement, Casa, had enormous influence on my generation, despite arrests and beatings and persecution that we endured. Our activism opened these universities to black and brown students. It achieved the creation of the first Puerto Rican, Chicano, and Latino studies programs, the hiring of the first Latino professors, our free breakfast programs, and those of our allies in the Black Panther Party, uh, and our exposure of the ep epidemic of lead-based pain in urban uh, tenements led to reforms that eliminated uh, lead-based paint. That summer of 1969, a, a young Puerto Rican poet and supporter of ours named Pedro Pietri recited for the first time at one of our sit-ins a new poem he had just finished writing. He called it Puerto Rican Obituary. It is one of the great epic poems of the 20th century. And Pedro would go on to become internationally acclaimed for his work. Hearing him recite it, cemented my lifelong commitment to fighting for social justice. I want to share a few lines with you because it still speaks not just to Puerto Ricans or Latinos, 
but to every North American and Latin American of working class origins. And this was the start of Pedro's poem. They worked. They were always on time. They were never late. They never spoke back when they were insulted. They worked. They never took days off that were not on the calendar. They never went on strike without permission. They worked 10 days a week and were only paid for five. They worked, they worked, they worked, and they died. They died broke. They died owing. They died never knowing what the front entrance of the first national city bank looks like. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow, passing their bill collectors on to the next of kin. All died waiting for the Garden of Eden to open up again under a new management. All died dreaming about America, waking them up in the middle of the night, screaming, mira, mira, your name is on the winning lottery ticket for $100,000. All died hating the grocery stores that sold them make-believe steak and bulletproof rice and beans. All died waiting dreaming and hating. Dead Puerto Ricans who never knew they were Puerto Rican, who never took a coffee break from the Ten Commandments to kill, kill, kill the landlords of their cracked skulls and communicate with their Latino souls. Not just the first few stanzas of this remarkable poem that awakened and inspired a generation of the Latin American diaspora. Pedro passed away in 2004 at the age of 59 but he lives in his timeless verse. It is up to us, but especially the young people of this country, to demand a new way, an end to the empire whose evil deeds the Monroe Doctrine first sought to cloak in elegant words. There has been progress. Latin America is no longer the backyard of the empire. It is the front yard of a world movement for social justice and peace. From Mexico to Honduras, from Cuba to Venezuela and Nicaragua, from Colombia to Brazil and Chile, from Bolivia to Argentina, the governments and peoples of Latin America are charting their own future. Take Chile, for example, with one of the world's biggest reserves of lithium, the holy grail of electric batteries. President Rafael Boric announced this week that he will seek to nationalize the uh, lithium mining in his country and will involve Chile's indigenous groups in helping to decide a humane way to develop this vital resource. His announcement sent tremors through many capitalist circles. But Latin America no longer, fear, no longer fears the CIA, the IMF, and their own right-wing elites, determined to live in a, in a multipolar world, to sell their goods and build alliances with whoever treats them with respect, whether it is be a European power, or Russia, or China, or the US. They're tired of Washington demanding obedience to its version of democracy and reacting only with sanctions, arrogance, and regime change to all who dare challenge its hegemony. We are here today to say those days are over. It's time the American people learned the truth about the US role in Latin America. Time that Congress, the White House, and all Americans of goodwill demand an end once and for all to the heinous Monroe Doctrine and the ideology behind it. We will spend the rest of the day discussing ways to spread this message throughout the land to ordinary Americans and to their elected officials. So let's get to work. And as we used to say in the Young Lords, pa'lante, siempre pa'lante, hasta la victoria. Thank you.
Welcome back to Code Pink Anti-War Radio, after a Lakota lullaby. I'm Marcy Winograd. Now let's return to Latin America and the Caribbean Forum, which featured journalist Nick Estes on forging an independent economic model. In 2014, Nick Estes co-founded the Red Nation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's an organization dedicated to the liberation of Native people from capitalism and colonialism. Nick holds a Ph.D. in the American Studies Department from the University of New Mexico and a bachelor's and master's degree in history from the University of South Dakota. He is currently an assistant professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico and a member of the Oak Lake Writers Society, a group of Dakota, Nakota, and Lakota writers. Here's Nick Estes. Um, my name is Nick, and I'm from I'm Kuichasha from the Lower Borough Sioux Tribe. And today, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the political economy of U.S. settler colonialism and imperialism as it relates to the Monroe Doctrine and the so-called Doctrine of Discovery, as well as the present moment and the energy wars that are taking place in Latin America, in uh, in Europe. Uh, as well as here in North America. And lastly, I want to talk about alternatives and what burying the Monroe Doctrine uh, after 200 years uh, is is opening up and the possibilities uh, for not just this hemisphere, but for the rest of humanity. So I want to begin with the Doctrine of Discovery. Uh, In 1823, there was a Supreme Court decision uh, that was determining whether or not the Cherokee Nation, which was targeted for, for removal in the state of Georgia, Uh, had rights or had standing within the United States. Chief Justice John Marshall cited 15th century century papal bull, uh, which is kind of commonly known as the doctrine of discovery, as the, the, the governing principle by which the United States asserts its ownership of this land, meaning that, you know, the United States is not a Protestant nation by any means, but it inherits the Catholic right of discovery from the Pope himself uh, as, a, as a way to uh, enact ownership of the land and to dispossess indigenous people. And within this dis- decision, uh, John Marshall wrote, the Indian nations had always been considered as distinct ind- independent political communities retaining their original natural rights as the undisputed possessors of the soil from time immemorial, but they were, quote, the weaker power, thus surrendering their independence to a more powerful nation. And out of this Supreme Court decision came other Supreme Court decisions that went on to define indigenous nations within the United States as so-called domestic dependent nations. And the relationship is one of, to quote Marshall again, a state of pupillage uh, or as a ward to his guardian. So this happened the same year that uh, James Monroe went forward and made his famous speech that became known as the Monroe Doctrine. Um, This Monroe Doctrine actually descends or traces its origin to the original debates uh, when the founding, you know, with the founding of the Constitution in 1887. It was Alexander Hamilton who pushed uh, for what he was calling a fiscal military state to levy taxes on the new citizens of the United States, to raise a standing army, and to create a centralized military system to prevent uh, prevent, uh, attack from two dual threats. 
one of which was named uh, in the Declaration of Independence as the 23rd Grievance against the King, and that was the so-called merciless Indian savages on the Western frontier. And the second was competing European powers, such as France, Britain, and Spain. So to kind of fast forward a little bit, um, the other founding father, Thomas Jefferson, created a system of treaty making that would, he, what he called, binding the indigenous nations to uh, the United States. And this was part of his broader vision of what he called the um, empire of liberty, right? Which would start from the, the North Pole and go all the way to the South Pole, where America was the center, you know, the central sort of project, the, the political, cultural, and racial project of the Western Hemisphere. And what he meant by binding indigenous nations to the United States was essentially if they signed a treaty with the US, they could not go and sign a treaty with another European power. Um, so this policy of what we know as Indian policy or domestic policy is intrinsically tied to United States foreign policy and how it's beginning its, its first relations, international relations with what they saw as independent nations, as indigenous people, and then you know, you, you know, newly independent states in Latin America. So fast forward to 1893. The United States was on the verge of war with Spain to expand its overseas colony. It was the same decade that the US Census Division had declared the Western frontier officially closed. Uh, and at, at a time when the American Indian population was believed to have reached its lowest point in known history, decimated by more than a century of genocidal war, famine, and disease. Um, and in 1893, Frederick Jackson Turner, who's an American historian, uh, famously known for you know, developing the so-called frontier thesis, said that he found the germ of the Monroe Doctrine and the genocidal wars waged against indigenous peoples in the Ohio Valley, meaning that those lands initially, initially desired by the United States were the same lands that the colonists cited when they were declaring independence from the British Crown, saying that the British Crown had prevented them from expanding their institutions of chattel slavery, of expropriation into the Ohio River Valley. Um, but this, you know, the violent westward drive from the Ohio Valley to the coast of California, Turner, Turner argued, was the start of the definite independence of the United States from the state system of the old world, the beginning, in fact, of its, its career as a world power. And it was also this year that in 1893 that uh, the United States overthrew the Hawaiian Kingdom in the Pacific. And in fact, the grandfather of uh, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, who was known as Grand Foster, Grandfather Foster, um, was the first Secretary of State to participate in the overthrow of a foreign government. And in this case, it was an indigenous government. And he, he, he said, the native inhabitants had proved themselves incapable of maintaining a respectable and responsible government and lacked the energy or will to improve the advantages with providence, or which providence had given them. Grandfather Foster went on to mentor his two grandchildren who became one, the founder of the CIA, right? John Foster, or um, Alan Dulles, and then a former, you know, a, a subsequent Secretary of State, uh, John Foster Dulles. These two individuals uh, engineering their own coups in Latin America and throughout the world, but taking inspiration from their grandfather, who was the first Secretary of State to overthrow a foreign government. 
And so I want to I want to take that those principles and thinking about how the United States has structured its relationship both internally to indigenous nations as well as ex externally to the Western Hemisphere. And I want to look at two policies. The first is uh, the Obama era policy known as American energy independence. And under this program, Obama increased domestic oil supply or oil production by 80%, specifically targeting indigenous lands or federal, federal lands itself. Um, this was largely due to what is known as the fracking boom, right? The, the, the new technology in fracking. But also it coincided with um, a, a, uh, a broader sort of drop in price of oil as, some, as uh, the economist this morning mentioned earlier. I'm not an economist, by the way, um, I, but I'm on an economy panel. <laughs> Um, but I want to say that there, is, there was a direct link between the ongoing Venezuela crisis and oil production in North America. When global oil prices began to fall, there was a subsequent North American oil boom, both in Canada and in the United States. And in the United States, they were developing the tar sands in uh, Alberta. So they also began to target and to they also began to target and to uh, isolate the Bolivarian government of Venezuela, who was using the money from its own oil production for the benefit of its, of its own citizens, its own, you know, its own uh, countrymen. Well, at the same time, you know, this oil boom that happened in North America began to wreak havoc on indigenous nations with the creations of new oil pipelines, the tar sand dead zones in Alberta, the fracking rigs and refineries, locking these North American economies into a drill and drill mentality at the expense of indigenous lands and lives. This boom also weaned the United States off of its oil imports uh, from uh, you know, countries like Venezuela as well. Um, and it was, you know, it was during, the or during the Obama administration, during the Dakota Access Pipeline struggles that there was a protester who was interviewed in, on Democracy Now! running to the pipeline uh, front lines, and she said that the reason why they're building the Dakota Access Pipeline is because they're sanctioning the oil in Venezuela because it has the largest oil reserves in the world. So indigenous people on the ground were not confused that this was not just a domestic pipeline struggle, but it was a power, it was a geopolitical struggle between the United States and the alternatives that were being created and fought for in Latin America. So both Canada and the United States drilled their economies out of the gutter following the financial collapse uh, in the, from 2008 to 2011. Meanwhile, Venezuelans voted in of the Bolivarian Revolution into power, which in turn increased the participation in social, economic, and political life of indigenous peoples whose rights were codified in the, new, uh, the newly minted Venezuelan um, uh, constitution, as well as women, LGBTQ people, black folks and poor people. The nation's oil wealth was, in a sense, redistributed to the lowest sectors of society. And this also, this oil wealth was also redistributed to North American indigenous nations. And in fact, my first uh, entry into uh, Venezuelan politics or understanding the Bolivarian Revolution was when Sitgo um, had gave my tribe heating assistance during the cold winter months. And I remember this because my dad called me and he said, son, they're filling up the propane tank. I told them to stop. I don't want to pay the bill. And so, 
So we uh, we called and I, I found out that this was a um, you know a solidar an act of solidarity on behalf of the Venezuelan government, and it it meant a lot to me because during those winter months they jack up oil prices, they artificially increase or inflate oil prices, as well as the local uh, utility commissions they pop off electric um, meters in the middle of winter on the reservation. And to give you an idea of how devastating that is, Buffalo County, which is across the river from our reservation, which is the Crow Creek Nation, the Crow Creek uh, Sioux Reservation, is one of the poorest counties in the United States. And they were popping off electric meters in the middle of winter. There was no national coverage of this whatsoever. So that single act of solidarity resonated within our communities. And I made it a point that if I ever traveled to Venezuela, I was going to thank um, Hugo Chavez, but unfortunately he had passed away, so I, I thanked his predecessor, Nicolas Maduro, who is the same height as me, believe it or not. <laughs> I thanked him on behalf of my family and my community, as well as our nations, for being there when the United States, the most powerful, richest nation in the world, lets its original people go without heat or choose, have to choose between food and heat during cold winter months. So skipping ahead, I want to talk a little bit about, of course, we, we know what Trump did under his uh, unleashing American energy independence and the ramping up of the development of oil and gas production in the United States and Canada and, and pushing through pipeline after pipeline. Um, but also, I want to talk about the success of the resistance. And the success of the resistance within North America is that the indigenous-led movements, whether it was from Standing Rock to Line 3, to even the, the North Slope of Alaska, those indigenous-led movements were challenging 27% of greenhouse gas emissions from both Canada and the United States, which is huge. So as they were challenging these greenhouse gas emissions uh, during these decade-long you know, struggles against carbon infrastructure, carbon extraction, you know, the Willow Project just recently went through because Biden, Biden said that it was, it was to offset the price of uh, oil and heating in Europe uh, because of a war that he's backing in Ukraine, right? So we can even see the proxy war in Ukraine that the U.S. is backing is also fueling uh, dirty, car dirty carbon projects here in the United States that are affecting indigenous lands. But also the Biden administration has committed to green energy. And that's where, we, that's where we, we have to take a critical look. While we all want a sustainable transition, it can't be the, at the expense of indigenous people. The, we can see that the lithium mines that are being developed at Thacker Pass in Nevada or at, the, um, at Oak Flat in, uh, in Arizona come at the expense of indigenous people. Copper is essential for the transition for creating um, you know, green renewable batteries and electrical systems. Of course, lithium is for uh, batteries themselves. But this so-called green energy revolution uh, is also looking to the south and looking to push out countries like China who have invested into uh, Latin America to help these nations develop their own, you know, path to resource nationalism. And in this case, it's a, you know, green resource nationalism. And in the case of, you know, certain countries negotiating what those contracts mean for indigenous people and development to offset the most deleterious aspects. Whereas the 
whereas the Biden administration isn't negotiating whatsoever with indigenous nations. So even though the Pope has repudiated the doctrine of discovery, in action, the United States is still practicing it, right? So even though John Kerry repudiated the Monroe Doctrine, the series of sanctions that followed in the Obama administration, the Trump administration, attempted to strangle and to choke out the, the alternatives that were rising against neoliberalism in places like Cuba, in places like Venezuela, but also the plurinational governments of places like Bolivia and the overthrow of Evo Morales. And so as indigenous people in the United States, we, our policy, our policy for green energy is fundamentally anti-imperialist, has to be fundamentally anti-imperialist, and it cannot come at our expense, nor at the expense of our relatives. So as we bury the doctrine of discovery, let's bury the doctrine, or the Monroe Doctrine as well. That was journalist Nick Estes, co-founder of The Red Nation, speaking at Code Pink's Latin America and Caribbean Forum, where Juan Gonzalez, the journalist, gave the keynote speech. I'm Marcy Winograd reminding you to visit us at codepink.org to learn about all of our campaigns and the Cuba blockade, Code Pink Congress, divest from the war machine, peace in Ukraine, China is not our enemy, justice in Palestine, stop the U.S. arms trade, ground the F-35, war is not green, and more. Thank you for joining us on Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Peace. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War.